0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Today in Australia Wide, we're going to take you on the most unusual cattle muster. A bunch of scientists, indigenous rangers and mustering crews are catching and tagging hundreds of wild buffalo and cattle in northern Australia to track them from space. From space, yeah, you heard it right, Space cows. It's the largest remote herd management project of its kind and it's happening in Arnhem Land.
2: You know, this is live data that's come through. It's gone from a buffalo up into space by one satellite back down to the ground and now we're reaching it via another satellite system. Um, it's using, a brave new world. Exactly, <laughs> it's a brave new world.
1: It's definitely a brave new world. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide coming to you from Wajak country, Perth. So we all know how much COVID has changed the world. Some of us went to work from home for a bit. Some of us lost work. And for younger people, a lot of university classes went online. Now, working online and studying online was challenging for many university lecturers and students. But it actually had huge benefits for people who otherwise would struggle to get a university education, like kids, from rural or remote backgrounds. Angel Parsons has been looking into the impact of online learning brought in through the pandemic and how it's helped country kids and why some are worried it might disappear.
3: Yeah, doing uni online might have its fair share of cons, but in Grace McDonald's case, it's pretty much all pros. I feel so much more comfortable learning in my own environment at home where I'm supported by
0: my family, where I'm not
3: isolated away. Being able to study while still living and working on her family's cane farm in the Whitsundays has made all the difference. But this month, Grace and the other agribusiness students at the University of Queensland say they got some pretty stressful news.
0: A couple of days before our final exams for the semester, uh, we received an email. Dear Grace, we are writing
4: to inform you about the transition back to in-person course offerings in 2024.
0: I think it's been quite um, a shock to a lot of people if they, like me, are currently working and studying externally, have to pack up within the next three months, lose their jobs, say goodbye to their families, try and find somewhere to live, is
3: just such a daunting prospect. Grace is doing a dual degree in agribusiness and ag sciences. She actually started in person in 2020, but switched to remote learning when COVID hit, and now she's thriving, like works on the farm, works for a local ag business, and has helped run a young farmers group. If she passes her exams, she'll graduate this year, so hopefully this won't affect her personally. But she says it's really disappointing to think the massive opportunities she's had might disappear at some unis as a COVID-era relic.
0: From what I've been talking to people, one girl, she is actually transferring to a different university altogether because she has no option to move.
3: Student Lucy Kill will be affected. She lives close to uni, but she does some external subjects so she can work to be able to afford to live close to uni. My grandparents were sick in my second year of uni and so being
0: able to enroll in the courses I had to do externally meant I could be in Brisbane and help mum with everything she needed to do. And it definitely takes away that, like, trade-off that I know a lot of internal students have to make about whether you go to work and make enough money to eat well this week or you go to a lecture or a prac and actually pass the subject. So
3: Grace and Lucy say the news came as a bit of a shock, but a UQ spokesperson said students were told back in January that it would transition back to in-person and discontinue COVID-related adjustments. The uni says it acknowledges this change will be significant for the small number of external students. It says it'll meet with them soon to find an appropriate solution and can offer support like help finding accommodation. But the benefits of returning to in-person teaching include smaller tutorials, field trips, and access to facilities. So what if universities across the country start to, quote, return to normal?
5: Yes, the stats do show that people who are studying fully online, more of them drop out and they take longer to finish their degrees, those that stay. But it's not as simple as the study mode. This is Dr. Cathy Stone. She's a conjoint
3: associate professor at the University of Newcastle, and she researches how we can give more people the opportunity to study and improve equity.
5: You know, going to university used to be an elite activity. In some universities, it, it kind of still is, but it you know, we're living in a world now where it isn't and it shouldn't be. She hopes unis across
3: the country really invest in external learning, aside from regional unis that have been doing distance for ages.
5: A lot of these students, they wouldn't be at university at all if they weren't studying online. It's more about the multiple responsibilities and commitments in their lives. We know from all the research that particularly for Students who are first in family to come to university, compounded by um, perhaps low socioeconomic backgrounds, also First Nations students, they're already finding it a massive challenge and right out of their zone of familiarity. If it all gets too hard, they're very likely to think, okay, it wasn't meant for me after all.
3: Dr Stone says universities do have an obligation to improve student equity and remote learning can be a big part of that.
5: I kind of get it because a lot of universities have got some really nice facilities on campus and I think perhaps some of them kind of miss the days of that vibrant sort of student life on campus. But I, I think they're harking back to the past and I think we've moved on from there.
0: I did a different degree before I did this one and it, I never finished it, but it was two and a half, three years on campus and it
3: was a completely different story for me. Up in Proserpine, Grace is hoping other rural students keep getting the same shot she did during the pandemic. And Over the last four years, they've built this up to be something that's so sustainable
0: really i've had a, an excellent time studying online i've been able to do so much so i think i don't see why that can't continue in some shape or form
1: proserpine student and cane farmer grace MacDonald ending that story from angel parsons and as we've just heard it can be a great option for some regional uni students to study online from home but a school in New South Wales' southern Highlands region is causing a stir with its plans to introduce a study from home day for upper secondary students. From Barrow, outside of Sydney, reporter Nick Reinberger has the details.
6: During the pandemic, many of us work from home alongside our children, learning from home. Now we're seeing a few hybrid workplaces where there's a mix of working from the office with a few days working from home. So how would you feel about a school offering the same hybrid experience? Chevalier College in the Southern Highlands of New South Wales is offering years 10 to 12 Mondays studying at home and then attending school for the rest of the week. It's not gone without some protests and some families have chosen to leave the school as a result. Nikki Brower is a former student with kids of her own at the school and is quite critical of the principal.
7: He has taken our education model, I guess, and just flipped it on its head with not so much consultation or consent or really understanding of how the school works in the beginning anyway. We're very upset with him for he's calling it he's upset because we're calling it the four-day week but what we're pointing out is he's actually replacing um, teacher-facing hours with this online learning and um, we're not happy with that because we've got kids going into HSC now they've already started and he's taking um, teacher time away from
1: them. Principal Greg Miller has defended the school's eight-month consultation process on these changes. He said not all Chevalier College students will be eligible for the study one day from home option.
6: Well, they'll be required to be on site to um, continue and engage in the same work uh, on site um, with the support and the facilitation of a teacher, whereas uh, those students who not only complete certain criteria, they'll have the choice of where they do their learning.
1: Chevalier College Principal Greg Miller. The proposal comes a week after the Queensland Education Department updated its policy to allow state and secondary schools to trial flexible class schedules, including four-day weeks and shorter days from next year. So a lot of change going on in
2: that space. This is ABC Australia Wide. Uh,
1: so the bilateral meeting between Australia and China, Anthony Albanese and uh, Chinese. Uh I'm so sorry. I could keep stumbling through this, but I am having such a perimenopausal flush oh. right
8: now. <laughs> Live on air. I'm so sorry. Imogen, the point about this oh. is that we need... When it comes
1: to, to women's work work health, work. the effects of menopause and perimenopause is a more open conversation than ever before. And you may have seen earlier this month, A guest on ABC's News Breakfast channel, Imogen Crump, stopped midway through a discussion to confess she was struggling with a hot flush live on air. Her candour and the response of the ABC hosts was praised as a refreshing moment of honesty about something that is rarely discussed, despite the fact it affects 80% of women in Australia. It's hoped that more research and public awareness on the issue will help make perimenopause a less difficult experience. From Gibson, Victoria, Natasha Shapova has this story. It just became my permanent state where it felt like the morning you wake up with the flu where
3: you've got no energy, everything hurts and you can barely move.
7: When Jo Caminiti began experiencing mood swings, low energy and loss of sleep, she thought she had depression. The 58-year-old worked as an environmental scientist in a job she loved but found herself crying while driving into work. The passion, once burning inside of her, extinguished. Soon after, she began experiencing severe joint pain and was struggling to walk, so she decided to take seven months off work through long service leave. I thought I
4: was getting old.
3: I thought I had some weird inflammatory thing going on
4: in my body. I didn't know what
7: it was. The rural Victorian saw multiple GPs and specialists, but none could pinpoint the cause of her grief, instead referring her to rheumatoid specialists, naturopaths and mental health workers. When she returned to work her position had been made redundant but it wasn't until she saw a news program addressing perimenopause that things clicked for her. They
4: described
3: everything that I've been going through for about eight years and I thought I've got to go
7: to the doctor and get this sorted and get on to the first line treatment which is menopausal hormone therapy. Ms Caminati saw a locum GP and was recommended antidepressants, considered to be an alternative treatment for menopause. She insisted the doctor prescribe her hormone therapy as she wanted to treat the cause, not the symptom. Previous research has linked some hormone therapies to an increased risk of breast cancer, which has heightened scepticism among GPs to prescribe them. But Monash Women's Health Researcher Professor Susan Davis says GPs are focusing too heavily on this risk without considering the cost benefit.
0: Doctors are worried about prescribing hormone
4: therapy for two reasons. One, they feel that patients may not want it, or alternatively from the outset, they don't believe hormones are necessary or that they don't feel confident prescribing hormones. At all.
7: Now a Senate inquiry will investigate the health and economic impacts of menopause and perimenopause launched by Greens Senator Larissa Waters. She wants to see federal policies in place to help women in this stage of their lives.
1: What should they be doing to support women in this phase of life and to help keep women in the workforce to try to lessen that terrible impact of women retiring into poverty because they have so much less superannuation than their male counterparts?
7: A spokesperson for the Royal Australian College of GPs says managing menopause or perimenopause could require several or longer consultations, which could be a barrier for patients due to low Medicare rebates. But the group welcomes more funding from the government to improve education and training. As for Ms Kameneti, she hopes other women can avoid the pain she suffered by getting the appropriate care. If you know what it is and you can get
3: treatment, that's great. You can manage and life goes on and you can be a contributing functional
1: human being. Natasha Shabova reporting there from regional Victoria.
2: You're listening to ABC Australia Wide.
1: It's been the Australian dream for nearly four decades, but after countless election promises, feasibility studies and a $500 million commitment from the federal government, fast rail to connect regional city Newcastle and Sydney is still a pipe dream for commuters. Now experts say it's now or never to get the project back on track.
4: Strathfield on platform one Have People changed. commute
1: from Newcastle to Sydney for work, for university, for
8: pleasure every single day. The Newcastle to Sydney train line is the busiest regional transport route in the country. Ellie Lewis is one of those regular commuters travelling on the Central Coast line. She's a young professional living with her husband and dog in Mayfield. I've been commuting for the last two and a half years. I've been commuting into Sydney at least one to two days a week. Ellie's office is in the centre of Sydney and recently they've asked her to start coming in three days a week. It takes me three hours basically door to door from my house in Mayfield to my office in the city. That's a six-hour round trip on top of a normal full working day. And that's with everything going right.
5: So if, say, there
8: is some sort of hiccup on the, on the tracks, like in terms of track work needing to be done, or maybe there's a fatality on the tracks as well, like all these sorts of things, The delay, like, I just can't get home. So many people when they're like, oh, you commute from Newcastle to Sydney. Wow, that's just so full on. It'll be great when these fast trains come in. I don't know when they're coming in, but when they come in, it would actually change my life. Fast rail is a life-changing concept in Australia, but it's something that can feel almost impossible. That's because it's been talked about for nearly 40 years with no tangible progress that people can point to. The only thing that has come out of it right now is feasibility studies.
6: You practice rolling your eyes when you (laughs) hear the words.
8: (laughs) Professor Andrew McNaughton is an international expert in high-speed rail. For Andrew, the default reaction of an eye roll is understandable. But it's a shame because he reckons a fast rail line could be revolutionary for a region like Newcastle and the Central Coast.
6: It's transformational. It's not a word I often use. It would be Mm. transformational to people's lives. Uh it is about social mobility and economic prosperity of individual people. The Hunter and Newcastle together could be, if it were properly connected to the rest of the state and not a standalone entity, it could be a, a incredibly bigger, thriving region. And that struck me um, that Newcastle had more potential than pretty much any place I've visited around the world of a similar size. To be a centre of advanced manufacturing, high skills, therefore a high-wage economy, um, much, much stronger than it is today. Modern connectivity is part of it. We're not talking some bullet train nonsense. It's just a fast route system. It gets you, what, 150 kilometres in an hour. This is not hard work.
8: Instead of sitting on a silver rattler for three hours, you could be a quick 45-minute commute over the Hawkesbury. And that opens up so many opportunities for business, for tourism, for living. The Albanese government made an election commitment of $500 million towards high-speed rail preliminary work, with the first leg being between Newcastle and Sydney. A budget is due in 2026, but this has been one of the big barriers to fast rail in Australia, the expense. It's not cheap to build a new rail line, but Andrew believes it's necessary. You have to remember, the current rail line that runs from the Newcastle interchange is Victorian-era infrastructure.
6: It's a great 19th century thing, but it's no good for the 21st and 22nd century. You have to build new. You have to build what's going to work for the next 150 years. Yes, it costs a lot, but it doesn't get built in a year or even a decade. Good 20 years to build it. Divide the total cost by 20. It's not an awful lot of money each year compared with what people are wasting on other things. It doesn't need any more studies. It needs a champion that says, we're building this for our children. And our children's children and their children, because this is about shaping the future.
1: That's Professor Andrew McNaughton, who's a UK rail expert, and he was speaking to our reporter, Larisse Dixon. And if you want to hear more in the latest episode of the Newcastle podcast, it's out now on the ABC Listen app.
2: ABC Australia Wide.
1: Scientists, indigenous rangers and mustering crews have been catching and tagging 1,000 wild buffalo and cattle across northern Australia to track the animals from space. That's right, there's going to be space cats, and it'll be the largest remote herd management project of its kind and it's spread across a mere 22,000 square kilometres. The project, run by CSIRO and the federal government, concentrates on getting a better grasp on wild populations that wreak havoc on the country. Christy O'Brien joined the muster in Arnhem Land.
4: In a remote pocket of northeast Arnhem Land, an unlikely gang of stockmen, scientists, and rangers have been thrust together on a collective mission years in the making.
2: This really, you know, large-scale tracking project, probably of the largest scale from a wildlife or a buffalo tracking perspective that's ever been done.
4: It's a task best attacked from all angles. In the sky, the pilot looks for a mob. He pushes the animals towards a floodplain where the bullcatchers are poised. Once caught, the buffalo must be roped, then tied to a tree, safely immobilised while the scientists fit the solar-charged GPS tags.
2: The novel part, I suppose, is then... That links through to a space-based satellite system.
4: Blood samples are also collected for important data.
2: Very little surveillance that happens in these areas. Some of these diseases that are really threatening our livestock populations at the moment.
4: MIMAL ranger coordinator Alex Ernst says if successful, this will be one of the largest remote herd management systems.
2: This new technology, it's been field tested this is the first time it's been deployed like, properly on country on wild animals. Okay,
4: Buffalo catching is a family legacy for some of these rangers, like Robert Redford, a senior landowner.
6: I used to see my uncle too, my string around here when I was as a boy. Wow. I used to follow him and see him how to do it.
4: That's pretty special. Yep. As soon as the tag is attached, the data starts flowing in and will keep coming for up to two years or until the tag falls off. Dr Hoskins says it delivers real-time, geographically accurate insights, even in the middle of nowhere.
2: You know, this is live data that's come through. It's gone from a buffalo up into space by one satellite, back down to the ground, and now we're reaching it via another satellite system. Um, it's a brave think, new world. Exactly, <laughs> it's a brave new world.
4: They'll also have insights into animal numbers. In this patch alone, there's estimated to be around 22,000 buffalo, but nobody actually knows. What is certain is the destruction of the landscape. From the air, pilot Nick Pasquale can see mass land damage.
9: There's too many, and and yeah, their impact is is on the environment is far greater than probably anything else we have.
4: Alex Ernst says knowing where the animals are concentrated means the rangers can target conservation efforts to protect biodiversity, water quality and restore degraded landscapes.
2: You know, you could potentially use that to help, like, muster or remove animals off country.
4: The data collected could also help turn the pests into economic, environmental and cultural opportunities for Indigenous communities across the region. As for the troops on the ground, time to pack up camp and hit the
1: wilderness of West Arnhem Land for more catching.
0: Better than the city, yeah,
2: bush, peaceful.
1: Nick Sadler ending that story there. And you can catch more of that on ABC Landline this Sunday at noon.
2: This is ABC Australia Wide.
1: There's nothing like being in a remote part of Australia after a big rain. The bush just comes alive. Our reporter Chris Lewis was travelling through the Gascoyne region of WA and discovered the recent rain in Mount Magnet had brought the frogs out of hibernation.
9: I'm with Stacey. We're in Mount Magnet. Uh, It's just gone past sunset and there is a chorus of frogs echoing through the town of Mount Magnet. Is this normal for Mount Magnet?
10: Uh, in my experience, no, not so much. Um, <laughs> I think I described it earlier as a cacophony. It was a cacophony, a perfect orchestra of frogs.
9: Well, there's a question. What do you call, what do you call a bunch of frogs Ooh. singing in the night? Is there a name for it? I don't...
10: There should be a collective noun for frogs. There should be. Like there's a parliament of owls, <laughs> a frenzy of frogs. I don't know. I don't know
9: either. <laughs> But um, it's lovely to hear. I mean, it's, it's not normal, though, is it? It's only because we've had some decent rain this week. Is that right?
10: I think so, yeah. yeah. It, it started the other day after the rain, and they just, they sound delighted. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you can imagine them out, like, dancing in the puddles, and just, like, the earth would be cooler. I think that, you know, the mud, and there's more water. They sound really happy.
9: They do. But it, it, what amazes me is that where where are these creatures when there's no puddles what are they doing
10: they hibernate or they get somewhere where it's nice and cool where they don't get burnt by the sun with their little or oftentimes you might find them in the toilet there was one that lived in the toilet at work but I bought that chemical stuff and they stay away now (laughs) one actually um yeah I got a fright I actually screamed really loudly in work because it was I looked into the bowl and it was crawling up it looked malevolent and I screamed and ran away. It probably wasn't, probably just wanted to be cool and wet, moist, I don't know. I, I mean,
9: Life of a frog. <laughs> but isn't it lovely? What is, it's amazing what a bit of rain can do, hey?
10: Absolutely, it feels like it renews the earth and everything's happy and calm again. It just, but it feels cooler. It's yeah. just, it's nicer. I think the humans feel it too. Less frayed tempers and <laughs> less frustration. Just cools everyone
9: and all the animals down.
10: Absolutely, just chill. It's nice. It's nice.
9: Let's listen to more of the frogs. Thanks for chatting, Stacey.
10: (laughs) Anytime, Chris.
1: Chris Lewis out on the road in Mount Magnet, chatting there to Irishwoman Stacey Doyle, who lives in Mount Magnet in WA's Midwest. And that is Australia-wide for this week. Thanks to Asha Couch and Kath McAloon for all their production this week. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you have a great weekend. Cheerio.
0: This is an ABC podcast.